How's it going, my friend? Welcome back to the show where we help you get closer to your food source and learn the skills to make every year a year of plenty. As always, I'm your host, Paul D. Wieland, and today's episode is a conversation with my friend Antonin Filosetti. Antonin is a teacher, a farmer, a forager, fermenter, and chef. So he is very, very involved in, with food. And, you know, he would consider himself a steward of culture, facilitating experiential learning that reconnects people to the relationships and skills that root food to place. So he's got a very similar mission with his work than me. And, you know, his formal background, though, is in medicine, psychology, nutrition, and organic agriculture. So he's trying to combine all those fields and, you know, learn as much as he can about it. In the last decade, actually, he has practiced a wide range of land management and food production techniques, including things like permaculture, Korean natural farming. He's worked in community gardens and even helped set up large-scale food forests. And his most recent focus has been on community nourishment systems, so local food systems, and really reviving a culture of hands-on connection to our food. So I'll get to an episode overview in just a second here. But before we do that, I just want to mention a quick word from my sponsor, Montana Block. Montana Block is sponsoring this podcast by giving you guys, as a year of plenty listener, 15% off their entire collection of really, really high quality uh, wooden kitchen utensils. So they sell wooden uh, end grain butcher blocks specialty cutting boards, magnetic knife holders, and a bunch of other things. And you can check out your selection on emptyblock.com, see what's in stock, and then year of plenty, that code will get you 15% off. So just to show you, I got a wooden uh, knife holder from them recently. I'm holding it up right now. It's made out of two different types of wood. And like I said, all American-made materials. They use American wood, American glue, and it's all handcrafted with a lot of love in their little factory here in Billings, Montana. But here's the magnetic knife holder, the wooden one. You can see I got my one of my good kitchen knives here. It just sticks to it like nothing. There's a, a really, really good magnet in here. I also have an end grain butcher block from them that's super high quality. So head over to emptyblock.com and check out what they have in stock right now. I know you're going to find something. And again, with the code year of plenty, you're going to get 15% off their entire selection. Okay, now to a quick episode overview. Me and Antonin, we start out by talking about Antonin's experience managing a small-scale local food system in an eco-village that he lived in. Then we get into raising rabbits for meat on one acre. He lives on one acre, and he's doing that currently, raising rabbits for meat. Then we get into our relationship to microbial cultures and their significance in the culinary and agricultural systems. After that, we talk about experimenting with fermented food to create novel and unique flavors. Next up, we get into the role of microbes in agriculture in the next few decades and where Antonin thinks that is all heading. Then we get into wild catching microbes and making IMO inoculants, which are indigenous microorganisms that are used in Korean natural farming. Along the lines of Korean natural farming, we then get into making fish amino acids out of fish carcasses to supercharge your garden soil. So you can basically use some of your catches if you're a fisherman to really create nutrition for your soil, for your plants in the garden, and really feed them like that. And it's a very sustainable way to reuse your, your catch to turn it into something productive in the garden. 
And then we end this episode by talking about using Amanita muscaria mushrooms for medicinal purposes and how they might have inspired the story of Santa Claus. All right, so a ton of exciting stuff in this episode. It was great chatting with Antonin. If you guys get value from this podcast, hit that follow button on whichever platform you're listening or watching on. Definitely leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you leave a review, take a screenshot of it and send it to me either on Instagram, on X, or to my email, which is theyearofplenty at gmail.com. And if you send me that screenshot, I will send you a link to my food preservation ebook for free. So that's pretty cool. And uh, it's got a bunch of recipes in there. I think it's over 30 pages. So definitely consider doing that review on Apple Spot, uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All right, my friends, enough for this intro. Get ready to learn from Antonin Filosetti. All right, Antonin, welcome to the show, man. I said your first name right, right? Yep, that's, that's how I've been pronouncing it. Okay, <laughs> cool. So uh, I've been following you on Instagram for a while. We've been talking a lot back and forth. You've had some really, really good tips for me uh, in terms of just home gardening and, and food stuff too. So it's it's about time I bring you on the podcast here to chat more about a bunch of good stuff. How are you doing, man? Doing great, and I'm I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, me too. Um, so first, you know, I, I think it's it's good to just give people maybe a quick rundown of what you do in terms of agriculture and, and food. I know you do a lot of awesome like private dinners. Can you just let enlighten us there a bit? Yeah. So um, I have a large background in regenerative agriculture, permaculture, Korean natural farming, um, homesteading, community gardens. Um, I've lived at an eco-village, helped start a really large food forest. Um, I currently live on an acre homestead. We raise meat rabbits, we have chickens, we have a large garden. Uh, and then I help a lot of friends at their farms um, with uh, different kinds of inputs, animal husbandry, processing. Um, over the last few years, I've shifted more into education. Um, I've been seeing a lot of people who are living in suburbia, living in cities, who um, are waking up to wanting these skills. Um, so my dinners have kind of been a platform for um, getting people back in touch with local food, um, their local producers, and um, just building community, getting people together to, to share food and break bread. I think that's really important. Yeah, the, the dinners sound absolutely awesome. I mean, I had uh, my friend um, Lorenzo on not too long ago on the podcast. He's doing private dinners like that and just seems like such a good way to to help rekindle the connection to food that we're losing, um, you know, in a local sense there. And uh, I mean, damn, you, I didn't know you, you also did like a big food forest and whatnot. You have a lot of experience in the agri agricultural space. I love that. You kind of remind me of my stepbrother uh, back in Germany who that's his whole thing right now. He's just going to as many farms as he can and just taking away as much of his like traditional knowledge. He does a lot of like biodynamics and whatnot. Um, so I'm, I'm pumped to hear that you're out there doing the same. We need more people like you guys just making sure that stuff doesn't get lost. You know, it's kind of a bummer that uh, those traditional farming methods are, are are going away in a sense. Or do you think there's maybe a resurgence going on there? I think there's a resurgence and I, and there are people out there like um, the milk trekker um, who are going around and, and studying more of these traditional methods and, and reviving them. Um, 
And I think looking at my own personal background and journey into agriculture, um, I started with conventional organic agriculture and growing things in rows. And then I shifted over to permaculture and, you know, kind of thought with a different thought concept about how to interact with nature and um, work in harmony with nature. And even more so now I've, I've shifted into like more of a community scale mentality about things where I don't think everybody needs to be on their own little homestead. I think there's a lot more to be said about, you know, looking back a few hundred years to how um, cities and villages and things and communities were working in harmony. Um, people were growing and harvesting and processing food together. Um, and there was a lot more of the culture built around that. Um, you know, the songs, the musics, the holidays, the festivals, that kind of stuff was really ingrained in the seasonal relationships with the land. And so I see that, that remembering really happening a lot right now. Um, that, that's cool. Yeah. That, that actually reminds me. So in Germany, you know, I feel like those kind of traditions are still somewhat around in some places. Um, like for example, where, where my, uh, my dad lives in their little town, they have like a communal bake oven where you can just go and bake your bread, like as a community and do a ton of loaves in there. It's pretty sweet. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and it was fun. Like I lived in an eco village and parts of it were a mess and parts of it were super cool. Well, what's an eco village? So an eco village is uh, a number of people who are living in an intentional community uh, on land. Um, there are usually like micro businesses and things that are happening on that land um, and various decision-making processes that are happening. Um, they're all different. They're all in different locations, different people. Um, the one I was at uh, is in Oregon outside of Eugene. It's called Lost Valley. Um, it's a great space for permaculture education. Um, it's also very wet and very dark and there's mold issues and things like that. And, um, so, uh, a great place to learn though. We had, we had 50 plus people on 87 acres. Um, wow. we, were, we were doing a lot of agroforestry, permaculture education. Um, we had a, a farm, an educational farm where we were growing food and providing food for the community. And a lot of kind of my role in that, um, and the businesses that I was involved in was facilitating the flow of food two people. So thinking about what community scale nourishment systems actually kind of look like, who needs to be involved mm. in that? What does that work look like? What is the storage space, the infrastructure, all of that kind of look like? And, um, and I'm, I'm really passionate about that stuff. It's really exciting to think about that because you get outside of and beyond like, well, what does this look like for me? But what does this look like for like my larger extended family and community? And, and um, it's cool. It's cool to see people working through that together. Wow. So that's pretty sweet. Cause yeah, I, you know, I always like, I think that the local food communities is kind of the future. And especially with the more we, you know, see stuff like COVID happening and, and, you know, we just need stronger local food communities, but yeah, putting that into practice and returning to, to how it used to be like that. It's, it's almost like we got to relearn that stuff and, and you're doing it. So what were like some of your top insights during that time about the, the movement of food, you know, that you gathered that you would maybe, if you were to like apply what you learned to a new scenario, a new place, like what are some of the things that come to mind? My first one is, is reflections on living at the eco village in general. Um, there's 50 people there maybe, but there's five people who have the technical skill sets and, and want to show up and do the work. And over time they get burnt out. And so I think it's a larger shout out to our society where people, everybody needs to get hands on right now. Everybody needs to start mm. learning things and participate because it's not going to be a small handful of us who like save us from this thing. 
Um, no. And there's, there's an element of the work that's involved in agriculture and food production and processing that we've uh, relegated or delegated to um, a lower class kind of in, in our culture. And, and some people think it's beneath them to do some of the, some of that work. And um, it's at the same time, some of the most meaningful and powerful work that we can be doing in relationship with the land and the food and the, and the people around us. Uh, so I think, I think as we see a cultural and a value shift, um, we'll get more people kind of on board to get their hands on with the process. Um, I think that there's a big yeah. responsibility on, on chefs and on people who are kind of the cooks or leading the charge, facilitating the food that's coming from your local community and getting it out to people. I know that's hard cause there's mm. already a lot on the shoulders of chefs, but, um, in our culture currently it's like our grandmas maybe used to make that decision or whoever was like kind of leading the community food process. But, um, right now that's, you know, it's, yeah. it's well, chefs. Right now, everyone's like fleeing their immediate family and like, you know, going to big cities and yeah, going as far away from their family as possible. And like, that's kind of your low, I mean, that's the, the, cornerstone of your local community is kind of family right and like you said the grandma facilitating some of that the food traditionally what uh what else is there like would you say just like having good communications between like the farmers and and maybe the pe like the, the neighbors or what else kind of plays a big role in, in facilitating food in a local community like that so for me, it was getting hands-on with other farms and farmers. I went out and I worked with other farmers. Like when I had a day off, I would go work at my buddy's farm and help him with projects, or I would go help process chickens at my buddy's farm or whatever. And that made it really easy for me when I needed to get produce that I didn't have or, or meat that I didn't have to go to them and you know make kind of on-the-spot requests, which might not have been fulfilled as easily if we didn't kind of have those relationships. Um, right. That, that, and, um, like, um, would you ever like take food and also like move it around the community that you lived in or was it just on this agro village basically? So, um, eventually I think the, the community ended up doing some kind of larger CSA that expanded outside of just the mm. eco village. But while I was oh, there, eco village, yeah. the focus was on. Um, really the community that we had. So we, we did 20 weekly boxes that would go out to families living in the community. And then um, we would also do events. So we would do anything from like a 20 person permaculture teacher education where they're there for a week and getting three meals a day, all the way to like a permaculture action and ecstatic dance event for a weekend where it's like 300 people for like two or three days. Um, wow. And we were able to source most of the food for those events from our farm and from our local food shed. So it's really cool. That's pretty sweet. And then did you also have to think about like how much would each person eat and all that? Is yeah, that something that needs to be taken into consideration? That's kind of more of the basic back end of, of stuff that you get into when you're a caterer or you, or you do larger scale cooking stuff. So I feel really fortunate that I had kind of that background before I got into agriculture and before I got into living at an eco village. Um, Growing up when I was a kid, I loved cooking. And so I spent a lot of time working in kitchens in some pretty toxic environments before I decided that I never wanted to work in kitchens again, at least in the capacity that, that I'd been familiarized with when I was young. 
And so I, I, along those lines, I really have kind of a rub with the word chef because it has this brigade connotation and it has this kind of classist colonialist vibe to it. And I culturally, I value like, you know, grandmas or aunties or kind of that matrilineal stewarding of, of culture and food a lot more than, um, you know, how we vocationally put that into a role. Um, right. All right. Yeah, there's definitely something to that. It's like the chef makes some really good food and is trained professionally to do it, but then there's the grandma with her secret recipes, right? Like they they're a big part of of moving food culture down generations or or have been in the past at least, like over generations. Um the, the grandma I'd, I'd assume was a big factor in really moving that down, that, that info, that knowledge. Yeah, there's a great channel on YouTube called Pasta Grannies. If you ever get the oh, chance yeah, to watch seen, it, yeah. it's incredible and it's so wholesome. It reminds me very much of my Italian grandma. She is just like that. Um and she cooks this like medieval food, you know, almost like medieval old recipes. She learned when she was like eight in the kitchen. Um, she worked at a local restaurant and then with her, her from her mom and grandma. And I'm just I definitely like I've Somewhere on my phone, I have some old videos of me just recording her because I'm like, I can't let this this knowledge go away, man. But yeah, that's pretty sweet. I, uh, yeah, you know, it's easy to talk about like, hey, we need more local food and all that, but like finding actual solutions and looking at at what that all looks like is a challenge in itself. So, I mean, you've been farming though for so many decades now, and all this different different methods and different ways of farming. What would you say are like some farming methods that uh, you think are maybe like most effective for a small scale homestead to produce a lot of food? I know you said, I think you said you live in a one acre homestead yeah. right now. What are like some things that work uh, in terms of just getting consistent food year after year? Um, so depending upon where you're at and how long you're going to be there, um, I think the first thing always to do is get your soil right. So mm-hmm. that involves um, your biology and um, your food sources. So cover cropping is always a great idea. Um, Getting your own compost pile and setup started. Um, And then ways that you can inoculate with healthy microbes. So um, Korean natural farming and Jadam. Jadam being what was kind of created by the son of Master Cho. Um, It has a lot of cool and very easy and very low cost uh, ways to... uh, cultivate microbes, and then use those to inoculate your soil to restore soil health. Um, perennials, if you're going to be somewhere for a while, I tell the, be- the best time to plant a perennial was last year. Um, yeah. And diversify your perennials, and you can always interplant other things with them. You can build little guilds. They're just kind of a great starting point, uh, especially if people don't really know where to go or what to and do. And guilds, guilds being like different plants that work really well together, right? Yeah. You kind yeah. of plant them. Yeah. Yeah. So your perennials will kind of provide your backbone and you can go in and plant other, other perennials or annuals. Um, but kind of as you're over, you think about your overall garden design, you'll kind of start with your perennials. Um, and then integrating animals is, is a great thing. Um, the meat rabbits are super, super easy. They're a great food source. They produce a lot of, um, waste that's great for compost and great for the garden beds. Um, chickens is another great option. I think everybody, if they can't have chickens, could have chickens because eggs are just an amazing food source. Um, 
Yeah. Well, what is your what is your rabbit production look like? Are you like are they pet like on a little piece of grass or how, how does that all work? So um, during the winter, mostly they're in the barn. Um, we have different kind of caged areas for them that we have to clean out. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say for about nine months of the year here, they're out on the pasture in rabbit tractors that are built out of chicken wire and pallets. Um, Sweet. Yeah. And, and then we, we have um, a lot of green material that just comes from the garden that we feed them. Um, we have a, another pasture that's next to us. So we'll go cut and give them pasture. And so during the, during that big chunk of the year, um, we're rarely having to supplement feed, but we do have to feed during the winter. Um, but what, during the winter we cut our, we cut our stock down. So it's like we have four does and we have three bucks, the bucks all free range. We don't really need to worry about them. They just kind of do their thing. And so it's through the winter we're feeding four does and then they'll kit out anywhere from seven to like 13 babies. And we can do that. They can have kids four times a year. So it's a lot of animal it's a lot of meat like you know and ours are, are um dressed like three and a half to four pounds so they're wow. good genetics they've got um new zealand and rex and it, they're um they're pretty amicable um so like you can handle them pretty easily um, i know there are some that are kind of a little bit testy but you can also breed that out so with you said so four females and like one or two males and how much meat would you think that gives you for the year, roughly? So if we did what it's like 30 or 40, if we did 40 animals, we each let them out once a year. That's like... Three pounds, you said, right? Yeah. It's 100, like 120-ish. 120, 120 pounds. Yeah. That's nuts. That seems yeah. pretty damn good. Yeah. Wow. And, I, and it's just, it's just going and moving the tractors and bringing them water and food every day. It's like, it's about the same work as the chickens. Right. And with the tractors, you're always rotating. So mm -hmm. you're also kind of grazing, I assume. And then like, what, uh, what do you usually feed and how much is it like a lot of food that needs to go in the input? No, no, we usually just feed. We've got a, we've got a pre-mixed organic pellet that they like, and it's, it's, it's pretty simple. So pretty budget friendly, you would say like yeah. rabbits. Yeah. And their, their feed conversion is really high too. I, I think they have one of the highest feed conversion ratios of like, it's like one, 1 1.2, 1.3 pounds of food to a pound of meat. Um, that's, so they, yeah, that's really good. I need to look into like the tradition, like I'm sure there's a lot of cool like stories of people doing this way back when, you know, that we have some re recorded historical accounts of people raising rabbits like for food. Because usually popular when you think they're in, in Italy, they're popular and they're, they're a great protein, but they're not good for, they're not a great fat source. So that's yeah. my, my gripe. It's like, if you have rabbits, you should probably also have pigs. I think you know, that's sort of rat the term rabbit starvation i think comes from that or it's like if you only eat rabbits you're not getting fat you're just getting a lot of protein and you're still going to starve long term yeah dang that's that's pretty fascinating though rabbits like and you said new zealand is the one the breed you have or yeah we have a new zealand rex cross and there's a there's a, a little bit of something else spread into it but yeah you what want are, what was that oh uh, do you know any other like types that might suit 
or might be suited for a little homestead um, off the top of your head? There are a couple great homesteading rabbit groups on Facebook, and I would just send everybody there because it's an insane wealth of information and, and probably likely that there's a rabbit breeder near you, wherever you are in the world um, that you could connect with. It's like the one thing Facebook is good for, right? Is like all the community aspects. That's like foraging and, and farming. Yeah, that's kind of a good place to be for that. What about like parasites? Is that an issue for you with your rabbits? Because that's something I've heard before. Yeah, I haven't seen any in, in our stock or heard of any around in this area. I, and I'm wondering if that's maybe due to feed or living conditions. Um, I could see if somebody was doing them in a more confined system and was feeding them um, maybe a, a grain heavier diet or a diet that even included grain, um, that that could shift things in their digestive microbiome. But um, these rabbits, they're, they're super clean. And um, compared really? to like a, like a wild rabbit that you might eat, um, because of the way we process them and we bleed them out, um, and then I, I, I like to brine mine, um, it's incredible meat. Like I did some smoked and I served them at one of my dinners and I had multiple people be like, this is not only just the best rabbit I've ever had, this is the best, some of the best meat that I've ever had. So Okay, so you, you, said, you said smoked. You also said that they don't have a lot of fat. Do you have a method for, for doing that? So I brine share? them. Yeah, I brine mm -hmm. them for like three days before. And then um, I smoke them at like 225 for maybe maybe an hour, hour and a half. Um, and I do a mop sauce on them. So um, I think for this particular batch, I made a mop sauce that was like chicken, chicken fat, like leftover chicken drippings and like um, some kind of jam and like some of that garlic fermented honey. And it was so good. And that's just, you add the sauce afterwards, like as a, as a garnish. No. So the or mop you, sauce, you're mopping it on while you're, while you're, okay. While like you're basting it, it almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As it's smoking. Okay. You get, you get cool. like a, like a barbecue mop. It's like, a, it's like literally like a, like a mop kind of thing and you mop it on the top of it. Yeah, have you ever tried using like a steak and taking a bunch of herbs, taking some butcher twines and making your own mop like that? Um, it's interesting. I don't know. Hmm. I've, I've done it before where you just, I remember we were in Germany grilling some uh, uh, venison, some roe deer shoulders. And yeah, we, we didn't have a mop, so we just kind of did that. And it was pretty cool because the whole time I just left the mop in the, in, yeah. the, in the fat, you know. It's like extracting some of those flavors and whatnot. Uh, it's a cool, and it looks cool. Like I bet that would be something fun for your dinners. That's like some do. Francis Malman stuff. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I love Francis Malman. <laughs> Maybe that's where I got it from a long time ago. So we will get back to the episode in just a bit. I just wanted to jump in real quick to let you guys know how you can best support the Year of Plenty podcast. If you get value from the show, please consider doing a monthly donation on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. Otherwise, if you're more into the one-time donations, you can leave a donation for however much you think is fair over at my Buy Me A Coffee page. Both platforms will be linked in the episode description. Also, please share an episode with your friends or on social media. Doing that will let other foodies like you and I discover the show and come along for the ride. And finally, if you want to connect with me personally, head over to my Instagram, which is at Poldy Follow me over there and let's get a conversation started.
Okay, that's it. Thank you so much for your support. Let's get back to the episode. Man, the sort of rabbits, that's super fascinating though. And then uh, how, like, what does your brine look like? Is it like a percentage wise salt? It's salt brine? Salt, sugar, um, thyme, garlic. Sometimes I'll put some of the garlic honey in there. Um, sometimes I'll do like a little bit of garam masala. So like it's got some uh-huh. warming spices. Um, I like that one a lot. Um, yeah, it kind of just depends what I'm feeling, but usually definitely always salt, sugar, um, garlic, some kind of herb. And, um, sometimes also throw some like hot sauce in there. That sounds good. Do you have a ratio for the salt like to, and sugar that you follow or do you just kind of experiment? I kind of eyeball it. I feel like you want, mm, what is it? It's like a cup, a cup of sugar and a cup of salt per gallon of water ish. But I'm like, I feel bad because I'm at the point of my life where a lot of my cooking and a lot of stuff I do is just intuitive and I yeah. feel blessed by that. But also I'm like, when I want to tell people how to do things, I'm like, yeah, I, I feel that though. Listen to your heart. Yeah. No, I mean, my thing is always like, well, if you use good ingredients, you know, it's probably going to taste pretty good unless you're messing up significantly, like burning everything or something like that. Yeah. A brine's going to be pretty forgiving. Place. So I wouldn't stress. Dang. Well, I got to look at that because we started the quail and then the rabbits would be super interesting. I've also heard that, you know, if you have enough rabbits, you could literally bring in like a cow's worth of meat in a year just with rabbits. And that that seems pretty fascinating to me because, I mean, yeah, I hunt a lot and whatnot, but there's a lot of time and stress with that every year, like filling the freezers. So having yeah. like a little supplemental side gig going with rabbits for example that'd be pretty cool the one thing i will say is that and it's i'll touch on just for anybody who's wanting to start a, a side hustle or a project is um just you know be careful that you don't start getting too many side projects going <laughs> um I, there's a really great farmer that i follow chris from sylvan aqua farm and um there's something to be said about specialization especially within small scale, sustainable agriculture, when we all start trying to do all these different little things, uh, it's almost better to find the thing that you really enjoy and just focus on that and diversify your, um, your sales streams instead of diversifying your products. If that makes sense. What do you mean by sales streams Um, where you're selling? Yeah. Yeah. So let's say you want to raise chickens and you're like, well, maybe we should try raising turkeys too. What you should actually do is go find a few more customers and ways to sell your chickens instead of focusing yeah. on trying to do a whole other thing. And it's easy for people to kind of get pulled into that with the initial hype. Um, but when you get down to it, it's just you're, it's a recipe recipe for burnout. Right, right. No, that totally makes sense. But it seems like the rabbits could be a pretty easy solution. And for for how many so you said six rabbits roughly and that's totally good on an acre with rotating it and moving them around um with the tractor and everything yeah and even even when we have 40 of them out there it's not oh yeah right there's when the babies come yeah there's plenty of food um at what at what point do you usually butcher them like how big are they are they fully grown these guys are about 12 12 weeks is when i like to get them they they can they can keep going, but what happens is they don't really get much bigger. Their connective tissue just gets more tough, and they're more of a pain to butcher. Right, and probably cook too. 
Mm-hmm. And that's sweet. And then you said you make grind out of them. You like to make grind. Right? Um, so I grind is all right. I actually like to do, cook them whole. I like to, okay. sometimes I'll part them out and make wings out of them, but I literally will just cook the whole thing and just kind right. of go at it savage and just, you know? Yeah. That uh, seems like that's the way I would want to do it. And like get all that collagen to that connective tissue, all the whatever fats on there, not much, but that way you're rendering it out. And, and if you smoke cool. them, you get a good crust on them and then you take them. And if you got a good cleaver and you kind of hack them up, like you would um, like a Peking duck, um, oh man you wouldn't even be able to tell the difference almost it's so good uh, i less, can see it. less fat but man it's just so good i want to eat one right now oh man send me one so uh going back to the like you know farming method for that's most effective for a small scale farm in terms of maybe like growing plants vegetables and whatnot do you you do like a you know, like a square foot gardening method or something like, do you utilize anything like that? That's trying to maximize your space. I try to think about what I'm going to use the most on a, on a daily or weekly basis. So I do a lot of, a lot of herbs because I Mm -hmm. use a lot of those with cooking. Um, right. And then things that grow well, just kind of within our climate. Um, so for us, that's like onions, um, beans, um, potatoes um and you're, you're but, an idaho right yeah Currently. but on that note it's like because those things grow really well other people are probably growing them a lot cheaper than i can and so i tend to go buy those from other local farmers and i'll save my space for little niche things that i want to grow like my little specialty tomatoes and peppers and melons and um what else do we do out here that's super fun I like to grow little test plots of things too. So I grew like a test plot of some wheat that I was playing with. I grew a test plot of some oats that I was playing with. Um, that's that's a cool idea. Like container yeah. gardening, that's what I'm getting into right now. I'm really trying to master grow back gardening um, skills and whatnot. I, that's what I did this last season and it worked out pretty well. There's definitely a lot of stuff I can improve on next year. But it just seems like, you know if I want to help like teach people grow more of their own food, it seems like grow bags are a bit more approachable for, for a lot of people just because it is like, you know, not everyone has got a big yard. So, but everyone probably does have, hopefully not everyone, but I'd, I'd hope most people have at least like a little space to put some grow bags down and at least grow some of their own food. So I'm kind of diving into that right now. If you're growing in a grow bag, um, I think the focus on that is your soil health because it's no matter what you're growing in there, it's, it's going to either succeed or fail depending upon the, the integrity of your soil. Right. And I think that that was one of my issues this year is just, um, we got soil, we live on a river here and a lot of the soil is very like, it drains, it's like a lot of sand, you know? So that it had a issue holding a lot of water and then the grow bags to begin with already, aerate a lot more than other containers like a, a pot you know a ceramic pot and whatnot just because they're breathable so i think that was that was a big uh obstacle for me but right now i i'm trying i still have all my grow bags filled with the the, the dirt and I, I was wondering like maybe i should take it all out and mount it you know over the winter um i don't i guess i could maybe still grow put some like clover down or something in there 
to keep it alive. But then over the winter, it's probably just all going to freeze. So I don't know how much of the the microbes there are really going to stay stay around. You know? Yeah. What I would do in the springtime is um, amend it with compost and really dig it dig it down in as far as you can dig it. And then I would plant a cover crop in there and and go with a diverse cover crop. Like Gabe Brown uses 15 to 70 different species in his cover crop. Um, and all the different plant microbes are going to help in different ways. And so every plant that you put in there, it's kind of going to create redundancy and resilience in your soil food web, more so than just planting like one cover crop. Right, like just clover. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I mean, that mimics nature to you know a lot more than just doing one species. You rarely ever see that unless it's like a perfectly tailored lawn or cornfield, right? Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll I'll have to do that. I also, I think I had some of the uh, the fungus and some of my squashes and whatnot. I forgot what it's called now, but it's the powdery mildew. It's what? Yeah, not powdery mildew. No, it was more one that. Um, wilts the sides of the leaves kind of like triangular shapes and whatnot Mm. and i did read there's a name for it i'm blanking on it right now but i did read that if that happens it's probably best to just start over with your soil um or use use species that are resistant to it so i still got to kind of figure out what i'm going to do there but i I think yeah the amending in the spring is going to be good how long would you keep those cover cover crops on there I would go until you're ready to plant and then, um, just cut them, cut them down and then, and, you know, plant and just leave the roots as they are. Um, if it's a, right. if it's an annual, it should just die, just die. But the, that structure and that cover on the soil surface is ideal. Um, yeah. and then the other thing is, uh, with the Korean natural farming stuff, you can make the lactobacillus serum and lactobacillus as an organism, um, kind of what it does out in the, in nature. It's like the cleanup crew. And so if you have any kind of big pathological imbalance happening in your soil, you can apply the lactobacillus and just do a few applications of it and it'll go in and it'll eat up and eat through and restore balance to whatever is going on. So I wouldn't worry about like torching that soil or whatever. I would just get some lab on that. That's sweet. So how do you make your lab then? Is it, do you literally use milk to do it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll usually use rice wash to collect the, the initial culture. Um, and then, yeah, you take that rice wash water and you, you mix it in a ratio of one to 10. So one part rice wash water and 10 parts milk in a container. And then you want your container to be two thirds full. And then you, are are you, are, are, sorry, are you using the rice wash for the starches? So the right, the right, yeah, the rice wash is, is a really unique food in that not many things want to grow in it besides like lactobacillus. So you're going to mm. use that to capture your initial lactobacillus culture that you inoculate your milk with. Then that lactobacillus that was collected from the rice wash breaks down, digests the milk, and then you have a separation of curd and whey. And your curd you could just eat as like a like a soft raw cheese. And then the whey you will save, and that's your activated lactobacillus serum. You can store it in your refrigerator for like, I would say two to three months. Um, but you can consume that and drink that yourself. Um, that's really good for your own gut. You can use that to wash your skin and your hair. Um, if your dog gets like smelly and stinky, you can wash your animals with it. Um, but when you're applying it to plants in the soil, I, I like to dilute it at least like one to 30. Um, it can be just a little bit strong if you go with it straight. 
but yeah, that's one of the most useful things from Korean natural farming is, is that lactobacillus serum because you can use it beyond just agriculturally. Right. That's pretty cool. No, I hadn't, I hadn't really looked into that one yet. I know I want to talk about the FAA with you, the uh, fish amino acids. Um, I guess we can get into that now. Why not? First, I guess I want to talk a bit more about microbes with you because I mean, I know you're very passionate about microbes and uh, they are, they are super important to life. Um, I just actually talked to Dr. Kiltz, who's like a carnivore doctor. I haven't released that episode yet, but he thinks that the microbiome isn't important at all, and I definitely disagree with him there. I think the like the microbes are really they they span this planet and they have an impact on everything. But I know you have a lot more thoughts on that. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah, um, I guess my my journey around all of this started uh, when my little brother got sick with uh, ulcerative colitis, which is an autoimmune inflammatory digestive illness. And my mom ended up healing it through diet, thanks to um, the work of Dr. Elaine Gotchall, who wrote a book called Breaking the Vicious Cycle. And it goes into how um, the microbes uh, in the body um, are affected by complex carbohydrates that we eat and either are or aren't able to break down. Um, so that really kind of started my thinking about you know, something else that might be interacting on us besides just the, the things we're putting into our body. Um, I started to get into um, cooking, fermenting, and then um, starting to understand the soil food web. And what I see is that the world around us is uh, dictated and dominated by these unseen forces um, that are microbiological, uh, that if you look at the actual biodynamics and the um, even just the biological mass of, of these beings, um, they almost far outweigh us. Um, you look at uh, the soil, how much of living active soil is actually microbes and how much of a human being even is living active microbes that don't share the same cellular DNA that we do. Um, it's, it's humbling, honestly. Um, and so kind of my journey of learning about them, learning how to work with them, I wouldn't say necessarily harness them because in that same sense, you could say that they're harnessing me to get me to breed them and propagate them to do their will. Um, but there's, there's a lot of, uh, symbiotic relationships in which we can benefit from, um, from microbes, uh, with food, um, with, uh, agriculture. Um, so yeah, I think we definitely need to acknowledge that they're there, um, and having an effect on us and, um, anybody who's maybe experienced, entheogens or like uh, psychedelic mushrooms could definitely say that, um, that that there's something there's something there there's something going on yeah there's just, there's some sort of connection going on to maybe another dimension who knows um but it's just i i want to get like a microscope i've been thinking about this lately i'm like i should just get a microscope again just for fun and like take stuff from outside and just look at all the microbes under it because <laughs> it's like you become so disconnected because you don't see them you know but they're there always. They're like you said. Most of what I am is my microbes. So to think that they're not having some sort of effect on us, I think, is a bit, um, yeah, blindsided. But um, definitely in agriculture and culinary in a culinary world, they play a big role. Like in agriculture, you know, soil soil fertility, right? Plant health, uh, nutrient cycling is probably the biggest thing. Oh man, you gotta have you gotta get Matt Powers around sometime. He is the permaculture guy. 
he is a wizard of um, microscopy, actually, and uh, studying and looking at the relationships that these microbes are having directly with the um, the rhizosphere. So the plant roots, kind of the thinking was that you have a plant root and you have a cell of like a microbe that's outside of the plant that they're exchanging information. Well, what happens is these cells, these microbes will actually merge and become one with the plant cells and then go back out into the soil and exchange information in this really crazy complex dance. And it's some of the stuff he's been discovering and the people kind of around him. It's so powerful. That's so fascinating. That's wild. Yeah. It's, so. it's kind of like our, the mitochondria. I mean, that used to be its own like microorganism then became part of the, the human cell, you know? Um, there's just so much we still need to discover about microbes too. And I know it's a very young science uh, that's just getting a lot of traction and more people are interested in it now. Um, but yeah, I mean, beside the nit like nit nitrogen fixing, right? That's a whole nother thing where they're absolutely crucial in agriculture. And when I was talking to Chris, uh, Chris Trump about it, we made, he made a big point about, you know, like how maintaining the soil and bringing those microbes in can just improve the health of the plant and then there's like a less need for chemical fertilizers and, and pesticides and whatnot um and that's like what conventional farming is kind of just totally uh, overlooking i think is, is a lot of the microbiology in their soil and whatnot well i think i think you're touching on a good point where culturally over the last few decades uh, our relationships with microbes has been one of like their germs they're this mm -hmm. outside thing that's going to come to us and cause harm or, or control something that we're not in control of. And, and so we started to create these environments of sterility and you look at um, conventional agriculture or hospitals or um, things like that. Um, it's like, well, we create an environment of sterility and then from there we can kind of come in and build things back, but that's not really how nature works. It doesn't work in that isolation. There's always microbes around us all the time in the air we breathe, um, and so the cool thing about Korean natural farming is, um, kind of honoring that, that the, those microbes are around us in, in a healthy environment. Um, they're almost like the super highway kind of, you, you think about the, the diverse fungal network of filaments that, um, allows for an insane amount of information transfer and, um, chemical transfer. Um, so it's, it's it's really cool to see soil that's dead come back to life. Um, and also to see it on a microscopic level too. Um, it's really, really powerful. Yeah. I, I read a quote the other day and I wrote it down for this interview and, uh, it was by Lynn Margulis, who's, I guess, a big scientist in the 1980s, 1990s and won a bunch of awards. But she, uh, she said that life did not take over the world by combat, but by networking. She was talking specifically about microbes there. Yeah, I thought that was pretty powerful because that, that is so true. Before, you know, if we go way back in our, like, the evolution of the planet, it was all, like, microbes building life together that, that brought us here, really. Yeah, they're powerful. It's cool stuff. And in Korean natural farming, they're, like, the central, the central thing. And I know you also... Um, like to do a lot of fermentation. That's where it kind of they come in into culinary world. Um, what what about fermentation is the most exciting to you? So um, I love 
flavor and the fact that you can take all of these things that are around us um, that we're already kind of consuming and growing and then there's even more flavor and nutrition to unlocking them. Um, and so I kind of started with the basics. I would say like lacto fermentation is kind of the most basic. It's your, it's your gateway drug to fermentation for most yeah, people. It's most what I do. I don't go much beyond that. Yeah. And it's, and it's a great one. I, I, I've just yesterday, I made four different kinds of sauerkraut and I've been doing, um, garlic fermented honey. Um, but, uh, Besides that, I mean, you got you got cheese making, brewing, um, the koji, the mold based fermentation stuff is really really cool. Um, but I think the overall the overall reason why we all like it so much is is flavor. I mean, when when you taste things, you're like, wow, that just that tastes so good. It's because it's, it's the microbes have pre digested it to to a point where it's really really bioavailable. And I think that's a thing where when you look out in nature, most of the things that you would eat and put in your mouth, they don't taste super great because there's not a lot of super bioavailable stuff in them. Like they need to be processed and broken down into a point where they're actually like nourishing to us. So you look at like old traditional food preparation methods, like um, processing camas, you'd have to bury them in a pit fire for over 24 hours to break the starches down into something that would then resemble like a candy almost. Um, but if you were to just go eat a camas bulb, you would get sick. It, the, the alkaloids in it would make you upset in your stomach. Um, so I look at something like cabbage. I'm not super big fan of just raw cabbage. I'm not proud to eat it, but I put it usually salt gets me on all bloated. it. I put a little bit of garlic and some dill or something in there and I ferment it. And all of a sudden the microbes act on it and they, they release B vitamins and vitamin C and things that are nourishing to my body so that when it hits my tongue, my tongue's like send signals to my brain. that's like, Hey, that's good for you. And it's delicious. And it's cool that we live in a body that does that, that has that biological feedback. Granted, it's been kind of short circuited by marketing and all the crappy food products out there, but real good food sends signals to our brain that tells us that it's nourishing for us. Totally. And animals have that too. They know what, what is good for them and what is not. And I think, yeah, like because of the marketing and just our food culture, how it's developed, I think we probably lost some of that. But yeah, I think fermentation for sure ha has had to have been a, a huge part of how we as humans throughout evolution consume plants because of some of the issues you described, like lack of nutrient uh, bioavailability in a lot of plants and plants having a lot of defense mechanisms that actually get um you know neutralized through fermentation and soaking and different ways of minimally processing the plants so it's pretty cool and the, the whole flavor thing though is interesting because for me most of the reasons i ferment it is because of the easy digestion you know the new uh, nutrition but the flavor thing is is quite fascinating too and i know you and other people out there like trying to do new ferments to come up with totally new flavors. Have you been experimenting with that at all? Yeah. And it's funny because I like everything that we're doing for the most part is taking an indigenous or ancestral tech and just applying it in our own bioregion. And so, um, it's not like we're doing anything new really, but it, it is like for where we're living currently there's, we're seeing a lot of new stuff and it's exciting. Um, Credit like uh, 
kind of restaurants like Noma actually for leading the way and, and making it more mainstream. Um, and, and I'm seeing a lot of people who are kind of home fermenters almost on like the cutting edge of this field currently, um, because they're, they're able to take risk and experiment and play with stuff on a scale that you maybe couldn't in a, in a restaurant. Cause you wouldn't want to jeopardize your entire, um, you know, business on all of that, but, um, yeah. it's exciting. It's exciting. And, and we geek and there's like, especially on, on Instagram, there's a, there's a good network of people and we send each other stuff in the mail all the time. Like there's a lot of R and D kind of happening and, um, it's, it's slowly making its way and more mainstream. But definitely within the Koji community, that's a big, a big part of it. Because Koji is a, a pretty special um, strain in that it, uh, depending upon what temperature you incubate it at, it will have a little bit more tendency towards producing protease or amylase. Protease breaks down proteins, amylase breaks down sugars and carbohydrates. So you think about whatever you're you're putting into that and breaking down you're gonna you could get a wide variation of flavor components that come out of that and you can take things right. like um proteins like fish like like garum um which is like a fish sauce um you can make things like that that take a that take a, a heavily fatty protein type thing and break it down into something that's really delicate and um complex and uh, super cool and nourishing very nourishing koji is an interesting one i haven't really played with it yet um my my girlfriends and uncle use it a ton for meat i know they like cure meat with it to break down those like the proteins and amino acids i guess it makes the meat a lot more tender and creates a lot of interesting umami flavors and it's a rice mold from japan i think Mm -hmm. right yeah it's a it's a mold that typically especially conventionally is grown on rice and um that's how you'll find it most commonly sold. Um, but it can be propagated on any number of grains. And so there are people kind of within that niche thing, making different kinds of kojis and experimenting more with that too. Yeah, that's super cool. I, they gave me a whole book on it called like Koji Alchemy or something. I just haven't had enough time to dive in. That is an have you heard of that book. One? I have that really? book as well. You're really going to enjoy it when you get in it. Yeah, Jer- Jeremy Umamski, I think is the name of one of the writers. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. yeah it's it's i have a lot of books i want to get through just trying to find the time but um gotta gotta do the koji because they yeah they were like swearing by it for meat at least like just with the meat. amount you're processing and butchering it's kind of fun because similar to kind of the korean natural farming you have these little waste streams where you're like that thing that was this waste stream now becomes a kind of a higher value added waste stream um whether that's making In what fish, way well, like making the, the FAA, the fish fertilizer, or, yeah, or making yeah. like um like a garum. Like you could you could take different maybe waste scraps from an animal you've you you've harvested and make like a uh, an amino acid dense and like nutrient rich like sauce that you could use in cooking. You think so. you could make an elk sauce? You could make an elk garum. <laughs> yeah, you definitely could. That would be pretty interesting shit. I need to try that. That would be a cool thing to try out. And elk are cool because you can use the bones in Korean natural farming. Um, You know, you can make uh, water-soluble calcium and it's so calcium. It's water-soluble calcium phosphate actually with bones. For for gardening? Yeah. Would you use that for gardening? Yeah. 
Yeah. Just like as a, a value add to your garden, adding more nutrients in. Yeah, the calcium like the, phosphate, I know within the Korean natural farming, there's a specific time that you want to apply it in the growth cycle. Um, depending upon what plant, it'll 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 have a different part in the growth, growth cycle, whether it's like a green or a root or um, a tomato. Um, but yeah, it's just the yeah, same as cool. if you would apply like a synthetic phosphorus. Um, right. Instead, you're you're applying a really highly bioavailable homeopathic amount of natural calcium phosphate. That's way cheaper. That's not mm-hmm. like I bought some organic, you know, ph- phosphorus and whatnot, and I was surprised at how much it is because this was the first year I've been able to do an actual garden for a while. So I'm like, wow, this is a lot more than I remember. But yeah, I got to try it. And we got to talk about how to make elk garm. I want to I want to hear your thoughts on how you would approach that sometime. That'd be pretty cool. Definitely. I'll yeah. send I'll send you uh I'll send you some some just basic garm links and then you can kind of uh you can mix Experiment other things into it. it. So yeah, you mm-hmm. could you could maybe throw some mushrooms in there or um, like some juniper berries or like you could you could kind of get funky with it. It's experimental. It's fun. That's cool. Yeah. That's a whole side of for uh fermenting. Like I said, I haven't gone too far beyond like lacto ferments and then making wine and whatnot. But definitely something to to add to the list. What about like wild microbes? Have you done much with like wild yeasts and just kind of letting using those to to do your ferments? Or do you always inoculate with something? So with lactobacillus type things, it's usually a wild lactobacillus. Lactobacillus is the most predominant um, microbe around us in nature, in the air, on our skin. Um, sometimes if I want to inoculate with like a wild yeast, I'll use that for, um, maybe making like sourdough or if I'm going to make something that I do want to go like alcoholic, or if I'm going to make like a vinegar, um, I've, I've done all of that with wild strains. Um, what about like a, um, Maybe a drink, like a beer or something like that. Have you ever tried that? I've never done a wild, a wild, a fully wild beer. I've done wild mead, but not wild beer. Okay. But I've I don't yeah, do a lot of beer brewing. I've actually been sober from alcohol for a little bit over a year now, and um, nice. Yeah, it's awesome, but it's it's shifted my interactive capacity with alcohol a lot, definitely. Yeah, it's like if you're not drinking, it's like why would I experiment with that? Why would I put my time into that right now? Yeah, but I just I don't drink much, I but yeah, right. That's something I'm I'm trying to get into too. As soon as I'm back from Germany here after this Christmas break, I'm gonna try to make some cool vinegars. Sweet. Well, let's get into this FAA, the the fish amino acids, because that's a big part of Korean natural farming. It kind of we were just hinting on it, how you can basically create it with some of your like fish leftovers, right? Yeah. Um, so why, fi- what, for one, like, why would you even apply it? Like, why are these amino acids important? And like, how, how can we make them and maybe even use as fishermen, like use our, our catches, you know, to make it. Yeah. So fish amino acids is a, a bioavailable nitrogen source that you can either apply to the soil or apply foliarly to plants. Like if you see that they're needing some extra nitrogen, um, it's microbiologically active, um, in the sense that you inoculate it initially with the indigenous microbes um, that you've collected. And so it's already kind of going to be 
in resonance with the biology of the plant and the soil that you're um, uh, putting it into. Um, a lot of the stuff in Korean natural farming is use what you've got. And um, so they, they say if you can get it, you know, get deep water ocean fish that have a lot of really great minerals in them. So you're also getting minerals because a lot of the soil food web requires minerals to thrive. Um, and you're applying it homeopathically. So it's like a one to 500 or a one to 5,000 dilution. So a little bit of it goes uh, a really long way. Um, as far as making it, it's super, super easy to make. If yeah, I know you got, some, so you sent me some pictures. Yeah. Can we share those real quick while we talk about it? Cause yeah. that, I, I think that will help. But, so yeah. you've got your fish, fish waste. And you're going to mix it one-to-one by weight with sugar. It's ideal if you have pure cane sugar. Um, If not, any sugar that you have will work. Um, And then you inoculate it with a little bit of the indigenous microbes because really you want the fungi. The fungi are what are responsible for helping break down uh, fats and proteins. Um, And then I also put a little bit of pineapple, I think, in this one because there are some enzymes in there that kind of help speed up the process. Um. So you basically just so for, let that sit. And for people listening, the picture we're showing is like just a cooler. It's a cooler full fish of scraps. Fish, fish scraps. There's some halibut. It's like salmon. Salmon. Yeah. Probably some steelhead. Um, and that's all fish waste from a, a place I was working. I was a local fishmonger last winter. And um, this was stuff that would have just gone in the garbage. And um, so I got, I got 30 pounds of fish waste. I mixed it with 30 pounds of sugar. And I put a, a handful of indigenous microbes that I that I had collected. Another thing you could do if you didn't have indigenous microbes is you could go find um, some leaf mold. So it's like an area mm-hmm. where the leaves have been like decomposed, and you can see some mycelium kind of in it. Because you're kind of if you got a visual connection on that mycelium, um, that's a good sign that there's going to be some some fungally uh, dominant and diverse microbes in there. So you toss that in there, you mix that all together, and then you close it. Um, you want a container that is slightly breathable, so not fully airtight, because there will be a little bit of gas exchange, but you want it something that won't allow flies in. So I, I picked a cooler for this one. Um, you let it sit so for... You just, oh, did you just open the little like side vents, basically, to let some of that air in and out? You can close the, the lid. Or... You, can just, you can just close the lid on it, and that's a plenty of air exchange for it. Okay. Um, yeah, that, 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 that was totally fine. Um, and, and I open it up every now and then check on it. And what happens is it becomes a liquid. So that sugar pulls all of the liquid out of the fish and starts breaking down the fish. And then, um, you want to let it go for at least six months. Um, I'll let it go for a year or two years and just let it sit and then strain out all the fish bits, throw those in your compost. And then, um, you know, you've got, probably out of this container i'll get like four or five gallons of amazing fertilizer that was essentially free how, besides the sugar how does that smell <laughs> after it's it fermented amazing so this is really it's not a putrefaction so putrefaction is where you get those off smells those smells that smell like nasty like rotting fish this smells like yeah. like ocean fish fish sauce but made with sugar. So instead of having that heavy salt, it has a sweet smell. And I get notes of like stone fruit, like plum and like, um, 
cherries and like peaches and stuff that come through it. Um, wow. And you even though you're just letting it sit there for so And it's long. totally edible. That's the other side of it. So everything oh, no in natural farming is totally edible. And one of the things Chris likes to do in his class is he'll pull out the nastiest container of this with all kinds of fungal growth on the top and be like, who wants to come taste it? And you've, you've tried it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's but it's so great. Cool. It's like fish sauce. It's like sweet fish sauce. It's so complex in flavor. And, you know, it's great to use in your garden too. But um, he had one that he let go for four years that was uh, some kind of bluefin tuna or something. And he gave it to one of his chef buddies who's um, uh, like a Japanese chef or something. And, and his mind was blown. And I'm like, I could understand why. It's a lot Super of this tech flavorful. is, yeah, a lot of this tech has synergy, um, which is really cool too. Um, that's sweet and like so let's say i want to do this with freshwater fish though you said you might want to add some salt to it because the salt is important yep. there no yeah i would add some salt into it so that you've got some more of those uh minerals in there um, um have you tried it at all with freshwater i haven't tried it with freshwater fish um so i don't know how much salt yeah, I-, I would i would say maybe a tablespoon per pound but okay Roughly a little bit. Maybe more, maybe less. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know how much salt is right in like a, a pound of salty fish like that. I, I bet you can find that somewhere and then just like create your own formula. Somebody That's pretty knows. sweet to think about. Yeah. <laughs> Man, and then literally just make sure no flies get in. Just let it sit there. Steer it, right? You said steer it every once in a while. I like to open it up and poke any of the bits that are poking out of it down into the liquid just to help them, you know, continue to get broken down. But no, there's no need to really like fully stir it and aggravate the whole thing. Yeah, because then you get them probably adding a lot more um, oxygen in there, which maybe I don't know if is. I'm sure there's some sort of fermentation going on here, right? It's a it's a slow microbiological process. The amount of sugar in it basically puts things into a a stasis so it's a very Mm. slow um just a slow process that's why it takes like six six to nine months right and how much would you then apply to your garden so that's where i was saying that one to 500 or one to a thousand dilution ratio comes in so um you would use like one part to like 500 parts of water of water okay right right okay yeah you talked about that already i think it and comes out just, to like like a, it's like a cup of, of of fish amino acids to like a 50 gallon drum or something like that and are you doing it like once a week or one time or you know that's a great how question often would you use it yeah um i think your plants will kind of tell you um you know it's like it depends on on how if there's not enough nitrogen in your soil and your plants starved for nitrogen, um, obviously just spraying at one time on the plant isn't going to address the lack of nitrogen in your soil. So you might have to keep yeah. applying it on your plant um, or fix your nitrogen issue in your soil. Um, but for most, what I found for most of the plants that I'm dealing with, usually I only need one or two applications because it's it's like a time when they're kind of going through a heavy growth push or phase or um like i think about my squash like when my squash kind of hit that point where they're like 
they kind of like seem like they're just getting tired. Like they're getting a little bit nutritionally depleted and they just need an extra push. And so I just spray them and they kind of green back out again. Um, yeah, I was noticing that with mine this year too. As soon as I applied some organic um, nutrients, they really changed their vibe. Yeah. Cool. Love it. Let me stop sharing here quick. <laughs> That's something I'll definitely have to look into a lot more. Um, and actually try to do with some of the fish I catch maybe during the ice fishing season here that's coming up. Sweet. Well, lots I already learned from you today. I know um, like it was a few months ago, I was making that quail poop tea where I took, so I basically took a bunch of, I took a gallon of quail droppings. The J Mark quail. Um, or was it Yeah, I mean. It was it was just a tea, and you called me. You like messaged me and saying like, make sure you do certain things. And that's what I want to get into. Like, I basically what I did was just I took the and I watched a few video videos on, it and they said it worked, so I, I experimented with it. But they, um, I took a gallon of the quill droppings in a five, put that in a five gallon bucket, and filled the rest with water, and then stirred it um, throughout the day and let it sit overnight. And then the next morning, like all the droppings had settled. And then I just applied that as a liquid, kind of how you would the FAA, the, the fish amino acids. And uh, I didn't really do it, you know, long enough, I think, to really notice a huge difference and see if it's working. But you had some really good points about like making compost teas and nutrient teas like that and how there's some things to to watch out for, especially like I think you said you want it needs to be an aerobic for um what do you call it not a fermentation like an aerobic process yeah when you're thinking about um making things that are going to be microbiologically active to then apply to your soil you want to make sure that that they have the right integrity because if you take something that's anaerobic or has anaerobic bacteria in it and then you go apply that to an aerobic environment it's going to create dysbiosis those microbes are going to start fighting and it's going to throw things out of balance and out of whack. Um, so I see that a lot with people when they kind of get gung ho about brewing teas and things like that. They'll put stuff into water, which you always have to have some kind of air stone and aeration. Um, otherwise things are going to go anaerobic. And then when you put things in water, what it tells microbes to do is it tells them to party and to make babies and to eat. And, um, different microbes reproduce at different, different rates and ratios. And, um, like bacteria reproduce really quickly and fungi take a lot longer to reproduce. Um, and they eat different foods. And so you're putting them in there. You got to make sure that they have enough food to party for the duration of whatever liquid party you're making and the right kinds of foods. Otherwise, you're going to have all kinds of issues because they're going to start freaking out and eating each other. And then you're going to have die off and then you're going to have toxins producing that die off. And like, so um, if you don't know what you're doing and why you're doing it, I wouldn't tell people to just start doing things because they saw something on the internet. I think it's much more right. important to learn why things work the way they work and from that basis like then start experimenting and doing what you want to do right right and with like a compost tea it's much better to keep it as aerobic as possible just because that's what the bacteria that you're going to introduce it to are going to be that makes yeah, sense and like 
Go ahead. I was just saying, if you if you have good compost, I wouldn't make a tea out of it. I would just make an extract because the biology in there is already intact. It's going to go out into the soil and do what it needs to do. So the 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 less you can do to disturb that biology, the better. Um, one of the major issues I've seen with probiotic farming or probiotic farmers is that their technology for applying their inoculants ends up killing a lot of their inoculants in the process. So microbes can be destroyed by pressure, like force. So putting them through a pump um, can be mm-hmm. really damaging to them. So a lot of the stuff that we use in Korean natural farming and Jadam um, is more of a gravity feed that will flow into like an airstream. So instead of like using a pump to force something out with pressure, you're allowing gravity to let it flow and then it falls into an airstream that blows it out. Um, so it's like a lot better they, to, yeah. I know they do that in biodynamic farming too. And and like, especially like uh, milk dairies that try to do like raw milk and whatnot, or at least the one that my stepbrother in Germany worked at, uh, when they would move it, they had like a vending machine that the locals could come and get it, but it was all like based on gravity and not pumping because of that, because they wanted to keep the structure of the milk and microbes intact. Yeah. So basically with the quail tea, you're saying like, don't, don't force it through anything or, or not quail. I mean, compost tea, don't force it through any pumps or because some people will like take their They'll take their like natural compost and then have attachments for a hose and whatnot and spray it onto the plants. Is that you? You do it it's, more. It's with not. It's not other, ideal. Yeah. yeah, it's I. I managed a farm where we were making different teas, and then we had a woman come out who studied under Elaine Ingham um, Soil Food Web mm. School, and um, she brought her microscope out, and we looked at. Uh, our compost we looked at uh, what was coming out of the end of our our sprayer at the time and we had incredible compost and um, we were brewing initially and then we looked at what came out of our brew and after 24 hours we had so much weird die-off and anaerobic species and stuff and so we scrapped that we went straight to extract our extract was clean and we go to spray and what came out of our sprayer was mostly dead and so we ended up putting a 50 gallon on the back of a pickup truck with a hose and doing a gravity feed compost extract. And the biology that came out of that was insane. And we had these zucchini wow. plants that were hit with squash bugs. And the squash bug is a vector for a bacterial infection that gums up the water flow system of the plant. So you could water them as much as you want, but they still look like they're wilting. And we had this one row that was pretty heavily infested. And just as a test, we sprayed that row, but not the row next to it. The row next to it completely died. That row came back, was healthier than ever, would produce fruit and had squash bugs like thriving and living off of it. Like there was a colony of squash bugs just enjoying its life there. And at the same time, the plant was totally able to produce beautiful, abundant fruit. So it was really powerful stuff. Just because of the microbes you introduced there. Wow. Mm -hmm. And doing it with the gravity, the gravity system. That's sweet. That sounds like a really cool, you said that was a class you did? No, I, I, I managed a five-acre no-till farm uh, in Meridian, Idaho for a couple of years in 2014 and 2015. And um, yeah, we, we had really large strip composting operation. Um, and 
it was it was the first time where I had somebody who knew what they were doing with a microscope kind of teach me about the inner workings of the soil food web. And then I got really into Elaine Ingham. And then that's also kind of how I got connected to Chris Trump, who's also within that circle too. Cool. Yeah. Like actually, cause I mean, I've heard that a lot, you know, with the pumping and, and stuff, but then actually having it confirmed by a microscope and science, that's gotta be pretty cool. Like that. I love that, man. So what, what's the difference exactly between like, and how would you make a compost tea versus the extract? The extract is super simple. So you would just take like a, like a mesh bag, basically. You'd take a couple handfuls of compost, put it in the bag. You'd take whatever your reservoir is, um, your water-containing vessel, and then you just kind of scrunch it up and just let that um, just flow into the water. So it's, 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 it's a five minute process. Whereas like a compost tea is like a, if you're doing it, like, like the liquid IMO that we brew in Korean natural farming has a very specific recipe, a very specific foods that you're feeding certain things and a certain time frame that you're doing because you're looking to bloom, um, fungal spores that you're going to then apply, um, so in, in that case, you, you, it's like a very systematic thing that's been proven. Yeah. But often when people do like me, just trying to, to cut like uh, some sort of tea, it's, you know, might not be a system behind it. And then that's when you get potentially get some uh, microbes in there that you don't want or some die off and whatnot. That's often and the, the extra- case. Yeah. And, and, I would say simple, keeping it simple initially is usually better. There's that want to be like, well, I've got this awesome compost tea or whatever going. Maybe I should add some more of this or add some of this or whatever. And I'd kind of discourage people from doing that. Um, one of the things that Chris really talks about in his classes is um, the nutritive cycle. And you think about like a baby versus like a 15-year-old teenager and how they're going to eat very differently and they're going to have different nutritional needs. And if you fed a baby what you fed a 15-year-old, that baby is going to really struggle. Um, right. And so having a pulse on what your plant needs and what your soil needs and how to give it that instead of just giving it a whole bunch of stuff, which could then lock things up and create issues is also kind of a thing you, you start to see. Do you have a like a method you go to for testing the nutrients in your soil? Um, you can get you can get a soil food test through your extension office, uh, or a, not soil food test, a soil um, just just a soil test um, from your extension nutrient office. test. Yeah, and then I think it's good if you can find somebody who's got a microscope and can come come scope it for you um, to see kind of what your biology looks like. They'll be able to tell you: Do you have bacteria? Do you have any fungi? Um, and then once you kind of have an idea of your biology, that'll kind of give you more of a pulse of where to step in with Korean natural farming or, or Jadam. Um, yeah. With the IMOs and, and like inoculate more of them. Right. Let's talk about that for a sec. I mean, I, I talked about it a bit with Chris, but you know, everyone has their own experiences and I know, I mean, the big thing it's indigenous microorganisms, IMO. So like where you live is going to, have an impact of how it all works i assume 
And uh, what, what, like, in what places have you tried the IMOs so far? So, um, yeah, along, along that line, um, the microbes where you're at are going to be the most resilient to whatever's kind of living there. So you could, like, I could harvest my indigenous microbes and send them to you, but your indigenous microbes are going to outcompete those. Um, so it's always good to get them f- from where you're at. With Korean natural farming, they say kind of go um, in your four directions, and then um, you can go higher but not lower. So mm. um, when I, when I'm like here in Boise, I try to go somewhere that's that's a little bit more wet. I try to go somewhere that's a little bit more dry, um, and then usually I'll like go up to the mountains, but like I won't go like like down to the valleys in like Oregon because that's lower than us. If that makes sense. And is that because of like warmer temperatures maybe in the lower regions or is there a reason for, for taking it from higher? That's a great question. Um, I feel like Chris might have a little bit more knowledge on that. And there's probably some people that have more of a better pulse on that. My thought is that um, microbes that live at a higher elevation are more, more resilient. They have to go through more shit. So they're going to be a little bit stronger. Whereas ones that yeah. live in a more cushy kind of comfortable environment are going to be kind of weaker and less resilient. Um, it's like people, right? <laughs> kind of. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's like, do you want to go get the dude who's the Sherpa up on the side of the mountain? Or do you want to get the dude who's like fucking eating Cheetos down at the 7-Eleven? S- sitting at, yeah, at know, the beach you know? or something. Whatever. Like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Relaxing, having a drink and a martini or whatever. Yeah. So, um so that's kind of the, the vibe when you're looking for these microbes, you want fungal diversity and dominance. And so that's kind of similar to that leaf mold. Um, I go out and I look at areas that are biologically thriving. So all the plants in that area look like they're just healthy. The trees are healthy. There's a waxy cuticle on the leaves. There's leaf litter. There's, um, you know, maybe sticks or twigs that have fallen kind of creating this protective area. Um, and then you use rice in Korean natural farming to uh, capture the indigenous microbes. In Jadam, you would just take a handful of that leaf litter and you would use that to inoculate your JLF or your JMS. But in Korean natural farming, you'll actually put out a rice box. Um, and you want the rice to be um, cooked a I'm little bit on, up the hard, pictures on the hard here. side. Yeah, so you're looking for areas like this that have visible mycelium, and that's where you're going to want to put your little box down. And then you have a paper towel or a cloth over your box, and it kind of creates this vapor barrier in there. And it's like you're creating this little inoculation chamber, and you're hoping that spores from this environment are going to blow or fall onto the rice that's in there and um start to bloom so you leave it out there for like seven to ten days and you come back and you pull the box out and there should be some pictures of some boxes in there that kind of have like a multicolored or like, like white one. bloom yeah yeah so you'll get a, you'll get a bloom and you're kind of looking for a lot of black and a little bit of diversity in there that's usually a sign of a good harvest and so that's now inoculated with a diversity of fungally dominant spores so you can take that imo and that's that's called IMO one, and you can store it, mix it one to one by weight with sugar, put it in glass jars, and that's your IMO two. There we go. I got a picture of that too. Nice. So that you use that in almost all of your Korean natural farming preparations. 
You want to collect a diversity of those so you can take a little bit of each one. See how I have Snively A plus right there? That means that's from Snively and that means that was an A plus collection. So that was a really good collection. So I might mix that with like two or three other ones when I'm um, making my IMO three or, or four. So what you're doing when you're making IMO three or four is you're, you're creating a compost pile um, with specific ingredients that's going to kind of act as your party for these microbes. And what's going to happen is, is they're going to go in there, they're going to start uh, reproducing, and the pile is going to heat up. And your goal is to get it to 120 degrees and then flip it and cool it down and do that as many times as possible until it goes to sleep again. Because every time you're doing that, it's creating fungal spores. So you could just create billions and billions and billions and billions of fungal spores. So you have this compost wow. pile then that's finished and cooled down. And it's not like a compost pile in the sense of like it's just high nitrogen or using it for nitrogen. It's a completely probiotic, inoculant, super dense compost pile that you can use as a, as a dry amendment. So that's, that's uh, IMO3. You can make IMO4, which is you take your IMO3 and you mix it with one-to-one uh, -one with native soil. And then you restart that process again, that party. And then what you're doing is you're actually bringing in microarthropods and nematodes and everything that's kind of one step higher up that food chain. And then you're doing that same process so that then you have even a more robust soil food web restoring tool. So that's IMO4. So then you can take that, apply it as a dry amendment, or you could make that liquid IMO tea, which is the compost tea that you make in Korean natural farming. Um, to apply those fungally dominant and diverse spores. Because the fungus, that's the backbone. It acts as the superhighway. So it's going to exponentially increase the biological activity and potential of any living system that it's in. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, the fungus in the roots, too, is really important for the, the nutrient exchange, right? Instead, mm -hmm. highway. It's usually it's usually the fungi of all of the microbes. I feel like it's usually the... From what I've learned, it's like, it's like kind of do that. if I wanted to get from, from me in Idaho to you in Montana and there were no roads and I had to walk, it would take me a really long time to get there. But if we build a road and we can get in our cars and drive to each other, it's much, much faster. And so the fungi are kind of like those roads. They allow bacteria and information and chemicals and molecules to travel much faster to more specific locations than they could on their own. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Man, that is so cool. Wow. And these are the boxes. I'm just showing a picture here quick. These are the boxes you yep. put it in? Yep, cedar boxes, and you want to, you drill air holes in them, and then you drill air holes in the bottom, and then the top is open, but you'll cover that with uh, like paper towels or a cloth, something to create that moisture barrier. Great. Cool. Well, thanks for bringing these pictures in. That's awesome. I think that'll help people kind of see it a bit better. Wow. Yeah. IMO, it's it's definitely super interesting. What I thought was the coolest about this whole Korean natural farming after talking with Chris is that just the fact that it can be scaled. You know, like you, I always hear like, oh, regenerative farming and all that. You just can't scale it. You can't feed the world with it. But looks like this Korean natural farming, some of these techniques can be scaled indeed. And Chris is doing it and people like you, I think you said you've worked on some pretty big farms with it too, right? 
yeah my my focus has been more on uh cannabis and um <laughs> pigs and chickens um but yeah what chris is doing is incredible and and also with the the jadam community i want to i want to give them credit too because um that's also they're doing some amazing stuff um jadam is just korean natural farming but like more lower budget right and some other techniques so i would say that korean natural farming is aerobic and jadam is anaerobic okay um, jadam uh doesn't require sugar doesn't require milk um literally all you need is like potatoes and leaf mold and whatever is around you you could use leaves or biological waste or i mean it's um, so when I kind of say like, uh, Korean natural farming is uh, aerobic. If you look at the soil horizons, the top layer of the soil is aerobic. That's where most life is happening. And that's where like the roots of plants are. But below right. that you, you have, uh, an anaerobic layer and you have what are called, uh, microbes that are called facultative anaerobes. And they kind of live in um the fringe of where the aerobic layer and the anaerobic layer meet and they're responsible for breaking down the minerals that end up allowing everything in the aerobic layer above to thrive so with korean natural farming you're really focusing on the microbes that are in that top aerobic layer with jadam you're focusing on the facultative anaerobes which are actually in the lower layer and so you're restarting that engine from an even lower space that allows everything in the aerobic layer to thrive. And so it's a little bit different mm. thought concept conceptually, but the end result ends up being about the same. And Artie, it sounds like you also go with each other, like doing both could is probably really beneficial. Yeah, if you can, 100%. That's cool. And it's kind of cool that it's like father and son who kind of came up with it too. Right. Totally. Totally. It's what's weird is most people are cool about it, but there is a little bit of dogmatic stuff within like, there's some people that are like, I'm only pure KNF. I'm only Jadam, you know? And it's like, you gotta be like, well, bloods or cribs right now. Like, what do we, you know, but no, it's like most people are pretty cool with using both of them. It's just like that. I'm starting to think that's just how we humans are. It's like, only carnivore diet, only that, you know. Um, I mean, I think the carnivore diet's a great tool and it's awesome. And, and I'm sure for some people, plant based works, you know, but it's kind of crazy how we just fall into these camps. And that's the only way. But no, there's many ways, which uh, I think is like so cool about the whole experimenting with fermentation and microbes and stuff. I think there's a lot more we're going to learn in the future. Where do you think, like, where do you think our, uh, the role of microbes is going to go in the next few decades in agriculture and, and in the culinary world? I think it's, I think we're looking, if we're looking at the, at the, at the future, we've got to look at the past. And I think we're just headed back into this remembering. Um, I see food systems becoming a lot more local. Um, hopefully, People start to acknowledge, especially in the United States, that there were a large amount of grazing ungulates and animals that, that lived around us, and we kind of destroyed their habitat and the ways in which they lived. And to get the land back to being healthy, we have to get those grazing animals back out on the land, and we have to get predators out there. And there's a lot of people that it's going to, it's 
going to shift their lives in the future, but it just has to kind of be done for the holistic health of the planet. And um, I think our communities will actually end up benefiting from it long term. Um, The predators are interesting. Why do you you think more predators just because of more ruminants, like wild ruminants or... Yeah. So my, so my big vision long-term is that we remove the fences. We remove a lot of the notions of private property and ownership that we have, and we restore the land to what it's meant to be as this whole thing. And, and the animals are then allowed to roam as they're meant to, to have their healing capacity on the land, moving nutrients as they're meant to. And the predators are meant to be there to move them. So they don't fuck up the water systems. Pardon my French. Um, yeah, I know. But, uh, but I, I, I see that kind of being the future, um, there in the past for thousands of years, this area was thriving with such a diversity and abundance of game. I mean, you look at like the journals of Meriwether Clark and Lewis traveling across and the yeah. people, the people that they were eating nine pounds of meat per person. Yeah, a day. I saw that too. You know, it's I'm nuts. just like, okay, like our perception, you see the, the, the mountains of the Buffalo skulls when they were removed from the plains. Like you're like, that's in, there was so much food. There was so much food. So like, I think we can get back there. Yeah. And I think we, yeah, I think it's totally possible. Um, I'm also like, if shit hits the fan, all the crazy people in Texas who have all the big herds of Neil guy and all that stuff, they're going to start getting out. And then all the tigers that are in captivity, they'll get out and start breeding and we'll get some super apex <laughs> predators and they'll start pushing the animals around. It'll be great. Humans will be kind of SOL, but like, yeah, roaming. Yeah, man, that that's an interesting, uh, interesting future. I, li- I, I like the idea of just, you know, having a bunch of ruminants out there doing what they're supposed to be doing. And sadly, and he, I think a lot of, can't, yeah, it's probably not possible. I, in, in, in Idaho, we have a great group called Lava Lake Lamb, and they take lambs around as a conservation effort. Um, they do a lot of amazing work on the land. And then they take those lamb and they sell a lot of that lamb to local restaurants. And I, I see stuff like that that's really powerful. So they use them as like grazers and whatnot for, for certain areas? Yep. That's cool. Yeah, I mean... That's the one thing that the politics of today are like kind of missing. You know, there's so much anti-meat, anti-animal egg narratives like going around. But the truth is just that in the past, there were a lot more ruminants on this planet. And if they're left to do what they're supposed to be doing, they're not a burden, but they're really a huge benefit to life on planet Earth. Yeah, I think about it all the time when I'm out in the in the mountains and um, looking at the the plant biology in the mountains is suffering, and and I and I see it most places where I go in the mountains, and it's because in those ecosystems, the only thing moving nutrients counter to the flow of gravity were the ungulates. They would graze down in lower areas, and then they would go poop in the higher areas. And, um, without that force, that biological force, everything is getting washed downhill. And it's like the only way to restore that is to restore the ungulates. Like, and that impacts water cycles, like the, where rain falls, all this stuff. It's really, it's like that butterfly effect thing, but it's real. How does it affect water cycles? Is it just, uh, 
Well, what, what they're finding it? is 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 with the small water cycles, they're they're often determined by transpiration from trees. So rain will mm. fall in areas where trees are sending up moisture to the clouds to kind of tell it to fall. So the less trees and the less moisture that's that's evaporating off of a forest or whatever, the less rain is being signaled to actually fall there. So over time, as the the plant uh, biology is degrading on in these mountains due to not having enough fertilization from um, the ungulates. Uh, the amount of rain then there's less rain falling because there's less plant material signaling to the clouds to release water. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. I've never heard about that before. Another rabbit hole I got to look yeah. into now. Thanks, <laughs> thanks. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I think in the future. I, I I agree. I think we're going to go backwards in terms of, uh, you know, using microbes and a lot more for resilience in, in the agriculture and, and soil health. And then culinarily, I think we're going to do a lot more fermenting and using uh, microbes for food preservation too. You know, um, I think it's become kind of clear that a lot of our systems are pretty fragile like especially with everything becoming more digital and whatnot, I I see fermentation as like a great way to preserve your food outside of like the refrigerator system and whatnot. And you know, I like, like our whole power grid and stuff. It's all pretty freaking fragile, and all it really takes is like one week of people not having power in the city you know and i think your people are eating each other literally <laughs> as bad as it sounds but and, and that's not like a dystopian kind of thing i mean i think that could easily happen solar flares whatnot we're due for one right now just taking out power grids so there's definitely a benefit in, in learning how to get back to preserving your food without you know the refrigerator and whatnot i think the microbes remind us of the power of uh of community and um i think that the the trend culturally is to kind of have this well i need to i need to figure out what i'm going to do when shit hits the fan and i need to yeah. figure out how i'm going to bug out and it's going to be me versus the world and mm. the reality is is that um regardless of whether stuff is bad or stuff is good having a, a strong community um, of people that you enjoy spending time around and enjoy um, doing things and doing hard work with is really important. And I, and I see a, a lot more of that starting to come together. Um, totally. I, you know, and, I, and that's what I want, regardless of whether stuff sucks or is good. Yeah. The local community, I've just been thinking about that more and more too. First it starts with family and then like your friends and, people around you you know it's and i'm i come from like you know i've been moving a lot my whole life so for me that's even more important nowadays just having a good good like good people around you and whatnot and uh settling down somewhere so we'll see if it'll happen in montana here hopefully prices are just insane right now i want want to stay here but it's just i'm sure idaho isn't much better yeah it's it's rough a lot of people want to move here that's for sure but yeah. it's really special land and I feel some crazy sense of responsibility because I was born here and I lived other places and I came back here and I watched, watched it grow in some really amazing ways and, and some less than amazing ways and want to be involved in stewarding that, um, that community for sure. That's awesome.
I respect that. So last thing I really want to talk about with you was the Amanita muscaria. Um, you know, it's like, so for people listening that don't know what we're talking about, it's the, the, the mushroom that everyone knows. It's a red mushroom with white dots on it. It's the emoji on your phone. It's, um, you know, Toad from Mario. I think that's his, uh, his name or its name. Um, so it's, it's a mushroom that a lot of people are familiar with, but we also in our culture are like, told to stay away from it. I mean, me and my girlfriend kind of have a thing. We always say Amanita don't want to eat it. But um, there is there is the Amanita muscaria that you can eat. Um, medicinally, you can use it, and you do that. Um, obviously, then I think there's like the death cap. There's other Amanitas you definitely don't want to eat, right? Like the death cap and whatnot. That one will kill you. But how do you like to use it medicinally? So that's a great question. Um, I prefer to use it for sleep. Um, some people will, will just, just generally use it for anxiety. Um, there's a lot of great information actually now out online about it, which is super cool. Um, you can, uh, make a tea out of it. You can, um, consume it in a, like a powdered capsule form, um, or you can smoke it. Um, really smoking. Yeah. That's interesting. Yep. And it interacts with the GABA receptors. So a little bit different. The GABA, um, right? GABA is yep. how people pronounce it. GABA. Too. Yep. Uh, so different than like psychedelic mushrooms, which interact on the serotonin receptors. Um, so people will report like relaxation with um, a small amount of it, but a larger amount of it can create heavy relaxation or like time dilation similar to like a mescaline trip. It's actually kind of a very similar compound um, in them. Um, if you want to use them for sleeping, um, it is kind of beneficial to decarboxylate them. So in the oven, you, you can do that in the oven or in a crock pot, um, and that's one reason why smoking it actually will will get a certain effect to it because it's decarboxylated in the in the in the act of burning it. Right, slowly like smoking it. So you definitely don't want to overdo it. I mean, this is something definitely that can make you trip. Um, trip a little bit. And um, it, it's interesting because I think the, the, the Western notion of what tripping is, is pretty broad. Um, yeah. It's not a trip like a, like a, like a Cubenzi or like a psilocybin containing mushroom at all. Um, it's a lot more, more mellow and um not as much of a visual trip it's more of like a like a physical body and like your perception of space time it's more like that it's more a little i would say even like disassociative in a sense yeah i remember i think wasn't it paul stamets when he was in joe rogan like years ago he was talking about how some people take and then they get into like these feedback loops where they just do the same thing over and over again during their trip and it can become destructive if you don't watch out. I can see. But that. I don't have experience with it. So it does I, make me wonder, like, because there's the full psychedelic experience of having it fed to a reindeer and then drinking the reindeer pee, which is what the, the shaman would do. And um, like, that's, I think, where more of the origin of, of the original Christmas story even kind of comes from, yeah. which is I a cool, get- cool season to talk about that but 
What were yeah, you going to say? There's, oh, I, I have. I asked Chat GPT to give me a narrative of the uh, the Christmas story, so I'm going to read that to close this off because I'm hoping to pump this out, this podcast, right before Christmas. So I think that'll be a good way to end it. But um, when you're doing it, like first of all, you forage for your amanita, or do you get it usually from somewhere? Forage, yeah. And this forage. last year was a particularly great year for them too. So, and are you, are you like, it, there are other mushrooms that look just like it, like just lookalikes, right? And that need to be, you need to be careful with this, right? There's not a direct specific lookalike to the Amanita muscaria. There are other Amanitas, but it's pretty easy to tell the difference. Um, from, from them. Okay. See, I, I don't have much, exp- like I always just. To me, like Amanita, don't want to eat it. Like, stay away from it. But um, it's probably they're just pretty culture. choice. One of the the dead giveaways to me too is usually Amanitas. If the patch has been out for a while, will be getting eaten by something. Squirrels will eat really? them. Foxes will eat them. Deer will eat them. Yeah, so you'll see bite marks out of them and out of nature. I saw some this year, like in trees, and I was like, "What? What? Like, someone was here, like throwing these mushrooms into trees, and then." figured out that the squirrels like i saw a squirrel run around with one of the mushrooms i'm like that's so cool like little fairies hiding their treasures and um but what about like the death cap isn't that an amanita i haven't even looked into that too much but you're asking the wrong amateur mycologist on that one yeah i mean i just remember when i was foraging a lot in, in wisconsin with some of my friends uh, that are like mycologists they they would always just say don't eat that death cap or stuff like that so i never looked into it much more but it's like with a lot of things if you're listening right now definitely don't go out there and just eat any amanita yeah red, red mushrooms with with white white dots but there is a medicinal benefit you can use it as a sleep aid how you're using it if you know how to are you like extract how do you usually do it? do you do an extract a tea or how do you go about it I really like using tea. it. Yeah. Tea is a nice and are you way just to using a little, just a little bit like small amount of mushroom or. Yeah. I, I, I just think, I mean, I'm not going to give any kind of dosage recommendations yeah. particularly, but, um, that's fair. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like it's, it's start small and, and, uh, play around and work into what feels right for your body. Um, that's usually kind of how I interface with most plant medicines. Cool. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. Don't want to give out too much here in terms of we're not recommending anyone to take it, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like like I said, the um the Amanita Christmas story. So I asked Chat GPT to uh to give me a little rundown of what it is. And I'm just going to read this quick because I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, you see like a lot of, like Joe Rogan always talks about this and I've seen some other people talk about it. But in the in the spirit of the holiday season here, when this episode's going to drop, I th- figured this would be a fun one to share. So ChatGPT said that in ancient times, particularly in Siberian and some Northern European cultures, shamans played a vital role in spiritual and communal life. During the winter solstice, the darkest and coldest part of the year, the shamans performed rituals to welcome back the sun in longer days. A key element in the rituals was the Amanita muscaria mushroom, notable for its bright red cap with white spots. 
The shamans collected these mushrooms considered sacred and used them for their psychoactive properties during solstice ceremonies. It was believed that consuming these mushrooms connected the shamans with the spiritual world, providing visions and deeper insights. The red and white colors of the mushroom were striking, and it's speculated that this color scheme later influenced the traditional depiction of Santa Claus. And then it goes on to say that reindeer common in these regions were also known to eat these mushrooms and exhibit erratic behavior, perhaps giving rise to the legends of flying reindeer. The idea of flying reindeer in Christmas folklore might symbolize the transcendence of uh, the ordinary world into the spiritual influenced by these ancient beliefs and observations. During the winter solstice, heavy snowfall often blocked the doors of homes. It's said that the shamans would deliver dried mushrooms as gifts by entering through the smoke hole or the chimney, as this was the only accessible way. This part of the story parallels Santa Claus's tradition of entering homes through the chimney to deliver gifts. And finally, these mushrooms were sometimes hung in socks near the fire to dry, which kind of goes with the whole smoking thing you were talking about which uh, some suggest could be a precursor to the Christmas tradition of hanging stockings. After the ritual con uh, consumption of the mushrooms, the shaman and the participants might experience visions adding a mystical quality to these long winter nights, a feeling that resonates in the magical ambience of Christmas. So thanks, ChatGPT, for that little summary. I thought it did a pretty good job there. But uh, yeah, I mean... It kind of sounds like our like whole a notion of Christmas comes from Amanita. I know it's just a theory in folklore, but who knows? Maybe someone at Coca-Cola at one point in like the 50s went out to Siberia and tripped on Amanita with the shamans and <laughs> then took all that and created our Christmas story. I mean, I think there's something to be said about multiple cultures having um, traditions for how to navigate the dark times of the year yeah definitely there's a lot out there like that and it's it's definitely a depressing time here especially right now montana gets dark at 5 p.m i'm sure it's not different for you so no i've been i've been on the cold plunge i'm on day 14 of, of everyday cold plunge in the river that's actually really a lot yep. and what, what just like in general like with mood and and all that or yeah, my 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 mood it it's amazing for my mental health. And it just gives me perspective. It gives me a moment to to have incredible gratitude and presence and um quiet my mind and just be in my body and to sit with something that's incredibly discomfort or discomfortable. Um it's it gives perspective on the whole rest of the day sitting through like starting my day sitting through something that feels as crappy as being in cold water. And and then it's like the good stuff is then incredible. And then the stuff yeah. that kind of sucks is like really not that bad. So Yeah, it's like, yeah, I've done something a lot harder today already, you know. I did mm -hmm. the cold showers for a while. Um so you just go out and jump into a river right now, somewhere around your house. I got a river like right there. I should start doing that. Boise River runs right through town. There's an amazing yeah. park. Um, and there's a great cold plunge spot. And I'm, I'm actually getting a bunch of people together for uh, Sunday, trying to start a Sunday <laughs> at 11 a.m., get people out, go do the thing. So that's cool. Fun. Yeah. That way you'll hold yourself accountable too, right? Oh, I'm addicted at this point. It's, it's yeah. Bad. Cool. I <laughs> love it. All right, man. Well, 
almost went for two hours here. I think uh, we'll end it there, but we can, I'd love to have you on some other time if you're down. I think there's a lot more we can chat about, a lot more good, valuable information we can get out to people, especially around uh, microbes and and whatnot. And uh, yeah, I, you gave me a lot to think about, a lot of rabbit holes to go down. And uh, I'll definitely be trying to maybe, you know, get some IMO into my garden next year and hopefully utilize my fish carcasses from the winter. Is there, oh, that's one more thing I wanted to ask with the um, with the FAA. Is it better to do it like in the summer, temperature-wise, you know? When do you want to kind of do that? If you've, if you've got like a garage that you can put your cooler in, you can start it now. Um, I, I wouldn't want to do it in a scenario where everything's going to freeze inside of the cooler. But as long as it's not freezing, I think you're fine to start it in the winter. Okay, cool. Yeah, and that also if you use a decent cooler, um, you'll have some insulation probably from the outside cold. Sweet. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to get out that I didn't ask that wanted to to talk about? I think we're good besides nixtamalizing corn. Yeah, we'll keep that for next time. That's a that's a really good one. I'm a I'm I'm not a big corn fan, but that's the way I would eat it if I were to start eating a lot more corn. So for the next one, we'll 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 definitely include that part. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. And oh yeah, where can people find you? Like online? Where can they work with you? Uh soil soil to soul, uh PNW, Pacific Northwest. Um, and then uh on Facebook. Antonin Villachetti, and I should have a website up for Soil to Soul, my my business soon. Nice, that's going to be exciting. Well, I'll definitely link all that in the episode description for you guys listening to check out. And once that website is done, uh, send it over, and I'll add that as well in there. So if someone listens later on, um, once that's ready, they can check it out like that. Cool. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. All right, we've come to the end of the episode. Hope you really enjoyed it. Don't forget, you can get 15% off with Montana Block at emptyblock.com. They have these wood and grain butcher blocks, cut, specialty cutting boards, uh, magnetic knife holders, all made from American wood and American materials. And that's 15% off with the code Year of Plenty at checkout. So again, 15% off with Year of Plenty at checkout. Also, if you got value from this podcast episode, please share it with a friend. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Connect with me personally. You can do that over on the social media. Instagram is probably the best place. That's at Poldy Wheeland. I also have a Twitter and a Facebook for the Year of Plenty podcast. So I'll link all those in the podcast episode description. On oh, one more thing, if you do leave a review for the podcast, send me a screenshot of it either on my Instagram or to my email address, which is theyearofplenty at gmail.com. And I will give you a link to download my free food preservation guide. All right, my friends, until next time, let's keep exploring real food together.